Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I am your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to Drumroll, please, our 200th episode. I can't believe we've made 200 episodes and actually more because we have a whole Patreon catalog of episodes. Yeah. Yeah. 200 is a lot of hours talking about Star Wars. Yeah. It's a huge amount of time and I'm so thankful for it. And if you've been here for all 200, I am wowed by you. You amaze me. And thank you so much for being here. And if this is your first episode, welcome. And we are so excited that you're here. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, all of you, for listening and helping us keep going for 200 episodes. You know, something that really amazes me about some of our listeners is we've got a couple people have told us this in the past, that they've started listening to us, you know, in the past year or something, not since we started, basically. And they go back and listen to every single episode to get, like, caught up. They go through the whole backlog. Yeah, I understand that because there's a lot of inside jokes and the whole spiel. Well, and it's just the completionist. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a big story arc that happens with us. I feel like we're constantly <laughs> learning too. We've been <laughs> we've been at this for like four years now, and I just feel like there's just I'm a different person than I was four years ago, and maybe not that different. I don't know. What's our story arc? What's our darker middle chapter? I don't know. Is it coming up? Yeah, our, our <laughs> listeners can probably decide that for themselves. <laughs> Please don't I tell us what our darker dark, middle chapter yeah, is. No, 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 no. I think our darker middle chapter actually happened in the beginning in a very true Star Wars sense of like still figuring things out as with every podcast. It's just cringy for I can't go back and listen to early episodes. It's just so awkward for me. But anyway, 200 episodes. It's a really big deal. And I'm so proud of you, Caitlin. I'm proud of us. And thank you so much for being with us on this podcast journey. It's been amazing. And we can't thank you enough. Yeah, thank you so much. It really has been such a treat, such a blessing, and just a lot of fun, too. So it's just been a ride. And I've really loved every second of it. And that sounds like a goodbye, but we'll be back soon for episode 201. So Yeah, yeah. no, no, no. It's definitely not a goodbye. There's going to be 200 more. (laughs) (laughs) What I think is funny is we completely missed our 100th episode. No, we didn't. Well, we didn't miss it, but it was our live show at Star Wars Celebration in Chicago. But beforehand, we had planned to like talk about it at the live show, and we completely forgot to do that. Yeah, brain empty in the live show, which... If you've listened to her or if you were there, it was an explosion of thoughts because that was the day of the Rise of Skywalker trailer at Celebration. And that had happened like 10 minutes before our live show. It was a wild ride. It was during the live show. Yeah, basically People were coming in and we're like, we're streaming the trailer. Well, <laughs> show will begin momentarily. <laughs> After we lose our minds. Yeah, it was great. Anyway... We couldn't be more excited, though, to have our favorite Star Wars author on our 200th episode. And I wish I could say that I planned this because it really does feel serendipitous that someone that we talk about so much in our conversations about Star Wars, we would get the opportunity to interview on our show. And I just want to thank Claudia for her time and her time on our show, but also her time pouring so much into her amazing Star Wars and other stories as well. She's such an inspiration and I could have talked to her for hours about Star Wars and the High Republic and everything. 
Yeah, and I don't think we even said it, but Claudia Gray is here for our 200th episode. Yes, and I'm sure they know that from the title of this episode. I know, but we didn't do like the fanfare beforehand. (laughs) So it is Claudia Gray that we were so excited to interview about Into the Dark and the High Republic. And you guys know Claudia is, is like our fave. <laughs> so to get to talk to her more one-on-one, we've met her before very, very briefly at Dragon Con. You spoke with her briefly years ago on a different podcast, but to finally have her on Sky Talkers with both of us for more than one quick question was really special. So we are really excited and I think you guys are really going to like this episode. Yes. And mild spoiler warning for this discussion, we do talk about the book pretty heavily. So maybe not a mild spoiler warning, maybe it's just a, full, a general spoiler warning. Yeah, it's yeah. a full spoiler warning. Yeah. yeah. We do touch on Light of the Jedi a little bit. I wouldn't say we have spoilers for Light of the Jedi, but we do talk about it. So Light of the Jedi is a mild spoiler warning. Into the Dark is full-on spoiler warning. Right. So I think without further ado... Let's get started and jump right into our interview with Claudia. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? We are so thrilled to have Claudia Gray on Sky Talkers today. Caitlin and I are such huge fans. And first thing first, before we dive right into the interview, I want to say a huge congratulations for four weeks on the New York Times bestseller list for Into the Dark. I Congrats. know. It's awesome. It's so great. And we loved the book, like really loved it. And I'm not surprised that it's on for four weeks for the New York Times bestseller list. So again, thank you so much for coming on Sky Talkers today. Our listeners will know we are massive fans. So this is a really big deal for us. <laughs> well, thank you guys. Seriously, I'm both gratified and highly relieved to know that you loved it because you never know when you're doing something this new, you really you can't know for sure exactly how it's going to hit. Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine. Well, Caitlin and I are really loving the High Republic and we can't get enough of this era and all the stuff that's coming out and the, the comics, the books, everything in between. And I think we would love to hear a bit about how writing this specific piece of phase one was developed. Oh, gosh. You know, this is one of those things that it's really hard for me to say it was definitely this where Into the Dark came from because, you know, all five of us helped develop the storyline together along with Mike Seglane from Lucasfilm and all of us worked out these events and even though it wasn't all set in stone from the beginning, we sort of had an understanding that probably Justine will be doing the first middle grade and Mm -hmm. Charles looks like he's going to do the first adult novel. And I knew that it looked like I would be doing the first young adult novel, but exactly what part of the story this was going to contain that was actually in flux for a while. What I originally thought was going to be the big crux of the novel fairly late in the game, we realized that needs to happen later. And that was the correct decision. It absolutely was, but it also gave you this moment of like, oh, do I have a plot for this book? (laughs) Now what? (laughs) But then we realized something else that definitely needed to be happening, which, by the way, happened to be the appearance of the Drangir, and they more than made up for it. So I don't think that exactly answered what you asked, but maybe it sort of gives you an idea about, you know, we're all weaving this thing together, and then you kind of have to pull your separate thread out as you're working. And this thread, I knew that, 
this was going to focus very heavily on Wreath and very heavily on Affy. And since Affy and the crew of the vessel are some of the non-Jedi characters that are near the center of the narrative, that was something that I was definitely really psyched to dig into. Yeah, I can't imagine like how you described pulling your thread out from everything else that is going on is probably very challenging. <laughs> we have to ask about Skywalker Ranch and that whole trip to Skywalker Ranch because it sounds absolutely amazing. But when you guys were developing the High Republic, was it kind of starting with these bigger themes or was it developing these characters and then deciding kind of where they went, how they fit into these themes? I guess what really came first? Because we've seen like in trailers and stuff that like fabulous whiteboard with kind of all the buzzwords mm-hmm. on them. And it just yes. seems like such yes. a fantastic time. Yeah, it was a great time. We really came up with the premise first. Each of us had sort of come up with a plot line, a rough kind of plot line, and they were set in different periods. None of those were the High Republic at that time, but just different plot lines that we thought could really spur a big wave of storytelling. And I'm not going to get too much into it because as it stands, we think we're going to wind up using all of those plot lines, but uh, we made the decision to go with the thing that was primarily Kevin Scott's first bit of an idea first, that that was the ideal place to kick us off. And then Mike sort of introduced the idea like the High Republic. What if we go to this time? What if this is where we're able to tell the story? And all of us responded very, very positively to that, to having our own little corner to work in. And also it's a time that is so legendary and so huge in the lore. And yet we haven't seen that much of it sort of between the old Republic and the prequels, you know, it's a little quiet, but we know that's the thousand generations uh, with the Jedi as guardians of peace and justice. And we were like, yeah, we want to dig in and see exactly when and what that was like. So you said that you didn't necessarily start originally in the High Republic era. And I know, like we said, we're huge fans of your work, Claudia, and you've written for pretty much every era now <laughs> within yeah. Star Wars. Is it challenging to kind of I guess, reset your framework of what the galaxy looks like as you're diving into these different eras and time periods in Star Wars? This time period, it gives you both unique challenges and unique benefits. The unique challenges are that you don't have the same depth of lore to draw on. You know, if you want to know what's going on in any of the time periods, sort of the major three trilogies, you have so much reference pull from. And that's everything from published works to the movies themselves to, you know, just things that the art department has worked up in terms of here's what these ships might look like. Here's what the weaponry would be. We know that you can make this trip that fast down to like, this is the state of the huts (laughs) at this time. (laughs) And we didn't necessarily have as firm a framework for all of that. But in losing that, though, we also gained a whole lot of freedom and were able to sort of set up our own temples about, okay, this is how it is right now. And of course, we were so lucky. A lot of the people in art at Lucasfilm really jumped into this and began producing this incredible stuff for us that has been amazing to see roll out. So we're building our own Bible back up, I guess. 
I am looking forward to the fact that we've all joked about this actually, because there are a whole lot of moving parts all over the place. And it's like, Oh, thank goodness. They're about to have all this on Wikipedia. and we can just pick it up. <laughs> It's so true. Wikipedia is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah, that, I think that's been one of my favorite things about the High Republic so far is just seeing kind of all these little tidbits that are dropped that maybe have come up very briefly in other parts of Star Wars canon, but are really just giving us a completely new glimpse at how, you know, specifically the Jedi kind of operate and view themselves in this time mm-hmm. period. I've just have found it so fascinating and it's been such a treat to kind of go through their mentality and their perceptions of themselves in this time period. Yeah, there's a little more flexibility. There's a little more openness. This is a period of time in which the Jedi's position is so unchallenged. And even though they work with the Republic, they're not necessarily just sort of following the Chancellor's orders the way that they are by the time of the prequels. And I think it's not as dogmatic. There's more freedom for people to be different kinds of Jedi. And you do stop the Jedi Council in the temple in Coruscant, but there are other temples. Uh, it's not as centralized. It's not as unified isn't the word that I want, because I do think there's a very strong sense of unity. But it's more diverse in terms of people deciding, like, this is how you use the Force. This is how you understand it. This is how you reach it each Jedi is sort of able to figure that out for themselves in this era. And so that's a real gift in terms of working on characterization. Totally. Did you approach the Jedi? And when I say you, I mean the whole group as a whole. Did you approach the Jedi from the point of view of how can they be different from the prequels? Or did you try to approach it with a blank slate? I mean, obviously, at some point you look for differences, but fundamentally we want to say, what are they now? Because you don't want to create differences for the sake of difference. That doesn't really do anything. Yeah, totally. You know, but we were just like at a point where there aren't the same challenges. Okay, you're going to have a little bit more freedom. And when they aren't as centralized, you're not going to have, you know, sort of one true way that everybody must follow. And that let us be a little bit more open, I think, to the mysticism of it. And I think we were all very much in agreement that these Jedi would be closer to the mystics that I think we've all sensed the Jedi Order has to have been built on. Uh, You don't really see it much in the prequels. I think you see it a little bit with Qui-Gon, but you just don't see it as much there. Obviously, Yoda, by the time of The Empire Strikes Back, he's the ultimate in that and I think you saw it some with Chirrut in Rogue One. Actually, he's not a Jedi, but you get what I mean, the sort of spirituality of the Force. I felt like he embodied that very strongly. So the Jedi had that kind of freedom then. And when you start exploring that and playing that out, then the differences naturally begin to show themselves. So on, on Sky Talkers, our listeners know that we call it the weird force stuff is some <laughs> of our favorite things to talk about. And I think that's been such a fun thing to hear within the High Republic. And I know that Orla was one of my favorite characters in Into the Dark. And oh, great. hearing her as a way seeker, I was like, oh, my God, please tell me more <laughs> about <laughs> way seekers and what they do, how they function within the Jedi, because they have this like kind of path that they can go on themselves and kind of 
it sounds like, like you were saying, like more flexibility and freedom. But I think at one point, I, I forget who says it, but one of the characters says that even way seekers have protocols to follow. And mm-hmm. Orla is there when they are down in the depths of the Jedi temple, like with the Sith shrines. And she's like helping with those ceremonies and stuff. And I just thought it was, it really sent my head spinning because it does look so different from what we see in the prequel trilogy of, of how the Jedi approach the force. And there is just so much more freedom in this era. And I thought that Orla was such a fascinating character. And I hope we get to hear more about Wayseekers. Yeah, that's been a really great concept to play with. The idea that, okay, you're not in lockstep with the Order right now, but that doesn't mean you have to renounce being a Jedi. Like there's another path for you. And the Jedi Order is open to that. Like, yeah, there are some protocols to follow. You can't, you know, set yourself up as like a force-wielding potentate on some planet. That's that's right out. <laughs> that's frowned upon. <laughs> nope. But you do have that greater freedom. And it really makes me wonder when we look to later canon, would Ahsoka Tano have had to leave the Order? Or would she have been somebody who said, like, I think I'm going to be a way seeker. I think this is where I'm going to be for a while, maybe for my entire Jedi career. I think in that era with that greater flexibility, that might've been the way that she went. And so they didn't lose people like that. It's also really tempting to ask like, what might that have been like just to have that more flexible, you know, I don't want to say theology, that's not the right word, but this more flexible framework, you know, for Anakin, if, there hadn't been this thing like, no, we know you come from somewhere else and you have a completely different background, but you must fit into this eight-sided, you know, octagonal peg hole or else. Maybe if there had been a different way for him to be, maybe it wouldn't have been as simple as, oh, I have to be this perfect, perfect Jedi, or I have to start listening to Darth Sidious. Yeah, there's only one or the other. It's all or nothing. (laughs) It's very black-white mythos at that point in particular. Yeah. I love when you were talking about Ahsoka because she's one of our favorite characters and something that I personally am very obsessed with. It's like my Mm -hmm. hill to die on in Star Wars is the Lost 20 and like where they come from, what are they doing, Mm -hmm. why do we have statues to people that have left the Jedi Order and don't agree with us anymore. And I've been on this whole tirade really since season five of the Clone Wars of does Ahsoka get a Lost 20 statue? Who's the first one? And it's something that feels like it could come up in the High Republic at some point. But even just like the way that even if it doesn't, like the way that you were talking about it, starting to see how the Jedi get from here to there and how we see them in the prequel era. And it's just been such a fun ride, even though we've only just started. This is not even remotely about the High Republic, but how freaking awesome were the last episodes of the Clone Wars? Like, oh, my God. I mean, it was like the last three or four episodes were just like the greatest extended action sequence ever. It was so good. (laughs) It was the best ever. I feel like those weeks when those episodes aired were like a true spiritual Star Wars fan experience. (laughs) (laughs) It was the best. They were amazing. So great. Speaking of the Clone Wars, you got to basically bring up a recycled concept in Into the Dark that's another one of Caitlin's favorite things about how there's a Sith temple underneath the Jedi temple on Coruscant. Yes. I wanted to ask you, how was bringing that in and were you excited about doing that? (laughs) I was excited about doing that and it did not occur to me that this was a natural thing to bring out. 
until really, I think I was almost done with the first draft. And then it was like, oh, 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 we have this, we have this awesomeness. So yeah, it, it was one of those moments where it was like, yeah, because again, you try to sort of separate, okay, we're in a different era, whatever, but it's like, oh, but that was there way before. You still have that to pull on. So yeah, sometimes we do have to remind ourselves of how many goodies still are in the box, (laughs) you know, how many toys we still get to play with. Totally. Uh, Speaking of toys to play with, one toy that you brought into Master and Apprentice was all the different prophecies. And as fans, we've Mm -hmm. loved kind of picking them apart and also not picking them apart and just kind of admiring them (laughs) and everything. I was wondering, would you ever consider bringing any of those into the conversation when writing for The High Republic? Or was that even on your brain when writing Into the Dark? Honestly, not when writing Into the Dark. When I wrote the prophecies, for the most part, I wanted them to sound the way prophecies sound, which is you should be able to take them and go, oh my gosh, that's exactly what they're talking about and apply it to like a hundred different things. <laughs> and it was hilarious. Like all these people lit up when the trailer for Rise of Skywalker came out. They were like, we knew Palpatine was coming back because, and they had the prophecy <laughs> Master Apprentice. I'm like, well, it's news to me. I had no <laughs> idea until I saw that trailer. None, zero. But people read it that way. And that's what you want with a prophecy. You want something that all these different people are going to be able to read things into. Now, you know, do I have my own pet theories about how some things might play out or what (laughs) some things might be? Yeah, but I'm not going to dictate that because that kind of takes away from the fun of it, honestly. You know, I wanted to hit that kind of nostradamus vibe where every different era, every different scenario somebody's able to pick that up and go look how this applies that's the fascination and the dangers of prophecies is that Mm -hmm. applicability to everything and i think it's kind of cool to see that play out within the star wars galaxy of you know of course we can start talking about the chosen one prophecy but then also like you were saying in the real world of no this prophecy that was in this book it clearly relates to palpatine and you're like well does it i didn't know i guess it could (laughs) Yeah, unless I was unwittingly prophesying what J.J. Abrams was going to do, which Mm -hmm. does not so far appear to have been one of my gifts. (laughs) I don't know. It kind of worked out really well. Yeah. (laughs) We were definitely those fans that were like, she knew. She had to know. (laughs) I did not know that. No. I mean, years of watching Alias, you would think I would have picked it up. But no. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, it still works in the end. So, just yeah. take the credit for it. Be like, yeah, I yeah. know. I, I dreamed about it. It's fine. <laughs> yes, yes. I have a scrying mirror, whatever. <laughs> to kind of go back to the mysticism of the Force, and for me, like Charlotte said, the, the idea of Sith temples and shrines kind of underneath Jedi temples just like really makes me happy <laughs> to think about like the whole yeah. symbolism of that and what that means for the Jedi and kind of how they get to where they end up in the prequel era. And we actually met very briefly at a panel in Dragon Con in 2019. And we asked you this at the panel and we wanted to ask you again now on our podcast. Oh, um, but what do you <laughs> think the balance of the force is? Did I ask at the time sort of what do you mean exactly? Yeah, I think so, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, what what do you mean exactly by that? 
I think, you know, so often in Star Wars, we see this discussion of there must be balance to the force. But something that Charlotte and I spent too many hours talking about in the lead up to all of the sequel trilogy movies, but especially The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker, was about how, well, what does that even look like? Because to have balance, you have to have both. But it often feels like the Jedi are trying to extinguish one half of it. And you actually talk about that a little bit in Into the Dark, about Mm -hmm. this division, this, um, I forget how you worded it, but uh, this like violent separation of them. Yeah, in particular is really disturbed by that. It's like, if you're severing the light from the dark, you're still in some way cutting into the force. But uh, what would ultimate balance look like? I'm not sure. I mean, it isn't all the light, but at the same time, you would expect like there are so many forces that always drag toward darkness. You do have to have somebody standing up in the other direction. And Qui-Gon in Master and Apprentice, at one point, I had him talk a little bit about this with Rael Avaros, where he's saying he chooses to be on the light and it's not because he ever thinks the darkness is going away. You know, I think he says it's not, I'm not going to win some cosmic game. He knows there's always going to be pain and, and suffering and difficulty out there, but he chooses every day. He's going to put himself on the other side of that. And I guess in order for real balance, as long as there are people tilting toward the dark, some people have got to try really hard to tilt toward the light. Mm-hmm. And maybe the act of trying is true balance. Mm-hmm. Do you think the Jedi in the High Republic represent balance of the Force? I think some of them do. They are, I think, a little bit more individualistic than a lot of the Jedi that we've seen later. And you've seen, you know, Comac is in many ways kind of troubled. And from Light of the Jedi, Elzar Man, you know, sometimes it's like, buddy, what you doing? What you doing, Elzar? They have their own, I don't want to say demons to grapple with, because I think that may be overstating the case somewhat. But, you know, some of them really do have to fight for that. But then you have other people for whom I think that balance does come very naturally. And I think it's great that that balance isn't represented through one way of acting. You know, I think Orla is a very balanced person and yet she's existing completely differently as a Jedi than Avar Chris is or, uh, or Maru or somebody like this. So I like the fact that you do have these Jedi who are so rooted in this mystical practice who aren't all like each other. There's not one right way to do it. Yeah, it seems like that's really celebrated in the High Republic. And this was really brought up in Land of the Jedi of like all the Jedi having different ways that they visualize the Force, whether it's through song or water. And I just thought that was such a cool way of talking about the Force and really emphasizing the differences in this time period, as opposed to what we see in the prequel era, which it's kind of just described as like, oh, you feel the force. But these Jedi, it seems so much more vivid how they experience the force. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was like, it it was so visual for me reading through it. And then seeing someone like Orla, who kind of goes on this other path as a way seeker. But in the book, a lot of the times it feels like she's the one that's kind of reminding Comac the most of, well, this is what a Jedi is. And this is what we're Mm -hmm. trying to do here. Like, even though she's, on this separate path that's not 
the same as Comax in the same kind of way in the Jedi. It feels like she was kind of the one trying to pull him back more or help kind mm-hmm. of settle his mind about these challenging thoughts that he was having about like, who am I and what am I doing here? Yeah. I mean, she may have some differences with the things that are going on with the Jedi order. And she even has a couple doubts. Like, is this the time I want to do this? Is this the right thing to do? But I think fundamentally she's very centered in herself. And I think that's what she's able to give to Comac as a friend. I really loved their relationship and they kind of felt like they struck this balance with each other. We did want to ask about Reith some because I can't believe we haven't really talked about him <laughs> yet because he's been kind of a standout character for Charlotte and I. He felt so relatable to us in his kind of journey of self-discovery from where he started at the beginning of the book to where he ended. And I feel like, I don't know, he just seemed very relatable and like I could talk to him and we would be friends. (laughs) I'm glad. I'm very glad. I mean, I was worried about his reception because I don't know that the world was just hankering like, yes, we need a a nerdy bookish Jedi. Yeah, we were. We were. We totally were. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, like I've been saying, it's just they don't give these babies personality tests before they take them. It's just your talent. And somebody in that crew is not going to have the personality that wants to be out on the forefront of adventure all the time. Honestly, my point person, sort of the inspiration for Reith was Hermione Granger, because Hermione, you know, Hogwarts, a history. She wants to take extra classes. Like that's what she did with a time travel device. She took extra classes. This is who she is. But when everything goes down, who do you want by your side? Hermione, you know, and I hope it's clear from the events in the book. When Reith is called upon to stand up and be in action, he can more than answer that. That's just not what he wants to be doing. He was very happy having his own Carol at the archives. He was very happy with that. <laughs> I, yeah, so I'm a historian in my day-to-day like professional job. So I was the person that was like, yes, oh my God, archival <laughs> <laughs> nerd, this is for me. <laughs> I think it was, like you were saying, like get that progression of his character in the beginning of He's kind of trying to think of any excuse to stay on Coruscant, but slowly but surely throughout the book, he's kind of forced into these situations where he has to put himself out there more. But at the very end, when he kind of makes the choice to go back for Nan, who he didn't know at the time was (laughs) part of the Nile, but that was a testament to his character. And like you said, not necessarily something that he wanted to do, but something that he knew was the right thing to do, even though it quote unquote, went against what he was supposed to do. Yes, exactly. He just becomes much more open to the different paths that the force might lead him down. He's listening to that better. He's hearing that better. And that is not unlinked to the fact that at the very end of the book, he's finally kind of able to get Geode. Wasn't, yes. wasn't able to be fully sensitive to the to geode as a living thing before but as he's kept broadening his perspective then suddenly it's like oh there you are okay we love geode we love geode <laughs> <laughs> and i just want to say that because i know you're not really on twitter anymore and i want you to know that our corner of star wars fandom is like all about geode we love him and i wanted to hear from you Where'd you even come up with this idea? It's so awesome. (laughs) I've got to be totally honest with this. I had first come up with Leox and Mm -hmm. was really enjoying coming up with 
things for him. And I knew Affy would be in the mix, but I knew we needed kind of a third party and somebody who was a little bit more of a peer and a buddy with Leox. And Leox, of course, he has a very distinctive voice and I liked writing him and he was somebody who would go on for a little bit sometimes. And I didn't want to cut into that. So I'm like, well, okay, I don't want, you know, a really talkative other individual in the spacecraft. But then I was like, well, I don't want to just do like, you know, diet Chewbacca. That sucks. You know, I don't want to do that. And I, again, I must be honest. It was my boyfriend who was like, what if it was just a rock? And I was like, a rock. Brain blast. Yes. And from that immediately, that all sort of took place. I mean, obviously Geode is not a rock. He's a Vintian. It's just kind of hard to tell a Vintian from a rock. But I've had the most fun writing that character. At times I'm like, God, I wish they'd make a Geode Funko Pop. And then I'm like, you can go in your garden. (laughs) What? Now you've got a Geode Funko Pop. A pet rock, too. If they bring back pet rock, but make it pet Geode, or not pet Geode, because he's not a pet, but just have Geode (laughs) with you. (laughs) Yeah, Geode as your personal navigator. Geode companion. Mm-hmm. Geode is my co-pilot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I have get one of those little suction cup things that could be on the dashboard of the car. Yeah. Yes. God, that'd be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here for it. It's so great. Like, I can't believe that he works so well. Like, it, when we heard about Geode, it was like, okay, what? And then you're reading <laughs> it and you're like, oh my God, he's the best. Like, look, look at him. <laughs> look at him go. Yeah. When I pitched the idea, they were really worried. It's like, he's not going to be like Groot, is he? And I was like, no, he's got nothing no. to do with Groot. He's nothing like Groot. And they were still really worried about it until they read it. They're like, oh, okay. 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 Yeah. We got it. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. So I hope that gives you some peace of mind too. I didn't even consider that. And I'm a Guardians of the Galaxies fan. So like Yeah, no, they're they're totally different in, in their very, very different ways. That's so cool. Since we're talking about the crew, I wanted to touch a little bit on Affy because I think she was so incredible. Like she's someone that I would go to for advice and like inspiration, I think. The choices that she makes throughout this book are so incredible and like very inspiring, honestly, like especially at the end when she turns in her stepmother in order, you have this great, yeah. uh, yeah. And you have this line about how the indentured servants couldn't wait. And so Afi had to make her decision. Was she always going to make that decision at the end of the book? Because I know when I was reading it, I almost wondered if she wouldn't. And then to see her actually go forward with it and make such a really scary step for her personally Mm -hmm. was really incredible. Yeah, I mean, it was always in the plan that, yeah, she would do that. Now, figuring out the exact right motivation, like the exact thought process for Affie to go through, that was sort of different. But And that was something that evolved through the writing and through the drafts. But yeah, I always knew in the end that she had to do this, that this was, for her, really, I think she probably makes the biggest sort of single sacrifice of anybody in the book. And it is a really big loss for her, but she does at least get the vessel in the end. So that was sort of the one thing that she does get to be, you know, I, I guess Scover was her her foster mother, but in a way really Leox and Geode are more of her found family. Mm-hmm. And that becomes almost official, I guess, at the end of this book. 
I really appreciated the inclusion of this part of the story as well, because something that Caitlin and I talk a lot about on Sky Talkers is how Star Wars introduced with the Phantom Menace, Anakin being a slave, and then kind of really hasn't fully wrapped that up. And Star Wars now is sort of still grappling with this idea of Mm -hmm. how do you solve slavery in the galaxy? And I know that in this time period, since we're before the Phantom Menace, it can't be solved. But I appreciated this bit of indentured servitude being discussed and brought in because the more we can bring that into the conversation and go and dive deeper mm-hmm. in Star Wars books, I feel like that wound almost can be healed. Yeah. And it has been a part of the galaxy far, far away for, I think, at least since the prequel era that indentures yeah. existed alongside outright slavery and I think it made it into the book it was like indentured servitude was not nearly as bad as slavery but that was not the same thing as being good Mm -hmm. you know it it was still oppressive and it still can be incredibly dangerous and hurtful so by having the conversation be about the indentures first of all it was believable to me that Effie wouldn't necessarily know that was where she was from I think if you're a child slave, unfortunately, you're probably very much aware of that from a very, very early point. But I could see that her parents had been independent and then they took an indenture, but they just thought, well, it's like we're working for this guild. It's not going to be that bad. And it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. So yeah, it was, it was interesting to get to explore that. And I'm glad that the storyline worked for you. Yeah, it really did. It really did. Another thing that really worked for me was the sentient plant situation. Yeah, the um, Yes, we love them. And <laughs> there's just so many cool concepts in this book that we are obsessed with. And this is one of them. And how did you get here? How did you decide that this is going to be something that you brought into this Star Wars book? Well, it was, oh, that other plot point's gone. It's gone. <laughs> that, that was really the moment. I'm excited <laughs> yeah, to revisit like, this plot point, yeah, by the yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, upon studied reflection, you know, here with my snifter of brandy by the fire, I've decided to bring in the Drengear. It's so like, oh, something else needs to happen here. And talking with everybody, it's like, you know, the Drengear we could actually get them in the mix a little bit earlier than we had originally thought. And this other thing needed to come later. So it was like, okay. And luckily I already was in an arboretum. That part predated the drink gear. So I'm like, well, okay, they'll fit in great. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll fit right in. So that was lucky. <laughs> I've definitely been looking at my Monstera very differently since meeting <laughs> Into the Dark. <laughs> Are you a Little Shop of Horrors fan? Because, yes. okay, I, I figured we talked about that when we talked about Into the Dark. And I was like, this is, I'm getting some Audrey 2 vibes. <laughs> yeah, it's Audrey 2 with fewer jokes and less singing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But the still same great story that uh, it's like the beating heart, you know, it's so great. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Yeah, it was so fun. It I love when Star Wars kind of pulls in these like horror aspects into it. And I, don't watch a lot of horror films, but I really enjoy reading it. <laughs> so, and seeing it kind of incorporated into Star Wars, I think one of my other favorite book, Star Wars books is Last Shot by Daniel Jose Older, which has kind of that Scooby-Doo vibe to it. Yeah. But 
Yours was a lot more creepy. <laughs> it was really fun. <laughs> the ship gave me big, if you remember the episode of Clone Wars Brain Invaders, um, it's like season two. It's very much like a haunted ship scenario on the episode. And it's Wait, you have to tell me what it is. I don't ever remember the titles of the episodes. I don't either. Caitlin somehow has a memory for this. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's season two, I believe. And it's Ahsoka and Barriss after they get trapped on Geonosis and they're kind of abandoned. Well, Luminara says that Barris is like gone and Anakin is like I don't think so like we have to save them but Ahsoka and Barris they end up on a ship with clones and they're taking the clones back to Coruscant and the Geonosians have put in this like worm that goes into the brains of the clones and like turns them into zombies and Eventually, it happens to Barris too, and Ahsoka is the only one. And like the way that the ship is visualized in that episode of Brain Invaders is a lot of how I visualized the ship in Into the Dark. Oh. And anyway, it reminded me a lot of that episode and that like spookiness. And the Jengir were so vicious, and I really loved it. <laughs> I'm very, very glad. It, it's always fun to have them calling people meat. It's always yeah. <laughs> it was also really cool to see this location. I, it was funny because I didn't even realize that I had read the Rise of Kylo Ren comic. Mm. And when I was reading your book, I was visualizing what we saw in that comic without even realizing that I was making that connection until someone pointed it out to me. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. That's exactly what I was visualizing. And I love when we can get any kind of synergy like that. I think that's awesome. It was really great because I was like, I'd love it to be an Arboretum when we were talking about this in our chat, the High Republic Writers chat. And I think the art had just been done on that. I may be wrong, but Charles Soule was like, oh, hey, we've got this. And at first I was like, oh, no, they've done it already. And then I realized this place was already supposed to be ancient and very much steeped in the dark side. And I was like, oh, okay, we're going to do the backstory of this place. And so automatically we had some art for it. And that was awesome. Yeah, I think that it was really cool because I remember even thinking about that comic and thinking that it kind of looked like the Garden of Eden and yet it was evil. (laughs) And I think that the same vibes are present here too, where it was, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful, but so cursed. Yes, (laughs) yes. I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about, just to kind of bring this back, because I feel like we've been laser focused in on characters and things like that. I wanted to ask what themes are really important to you when you write young adult Star Wars novels? Oh, gosh, I try not to think about theme too strongly in the beginning. I kind of feel if you preordain a theme, it ends up coming across really heavy handedly. And sometimes you just look back and realize like, oh, hey, this has come out. The fact that Into the Dark was going to be so much about grief was not something I really understood until I'd written it, the, you know, yeah. at least the first draft. But the main thing that you want to hit in a young adult novel for anything at all, you know, it has to center the coming of age experience. It has to feature a moment, it has to center around a moment where the young protagonist has to stand up and be independent in a way that they haven't been before. And for Reef, you know, he loses his master. He has to figure out how to go on and what he's going to do with that. And for Affie, she becomes disillusioned with her adoptive mother and has to make a decision about whether she's going to be party to what Scoverbine's doing or not. So 
as long as you hit that point in a young adult novel, as long as you have that as a critical element, I think you have a lot of freedom to explore almost anything you can imagine. Yeah. And like how they get there. Cause Reith really went through the ringer in this book of yes, poor guy. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was really great. I loved the end of the book when Reith and Comac kind of come together because, you know, I think when you first meet them, they kind of seem like they would be a good fit on some ways. But as you go through the story and, and kind of Comac's past and the grief that he's harboring himself, that's still very much a part of him to where they both end up at the end of the book. It's like, oh, now I, I really understand why they would be a good fit because there's something similar in each of them. And it seems like they'll really be able to help each other in the future going forward. Yeah, they find each other on the island of misfit toys. Oh, yeah. Okay, so for our last question, we love to ask every guest that we have on the show our Star Wars dinner question, which is which five people related to Star Wars, fictional or non, would you like to bring to a special dinner? And the object is good conversation. Oh, the object is good conversation. Okay, let me think about this for a minute. I mean, obviously, Carrie Fisher, who who does not invite her to dinner if you can have mm-hmm. her to dinner? I think that goes without saying. So it's got to be her. I don't think... I would love to talk with John Williams. Mm, yes. Uh, and he seems like a really interesting and lively person. I'd like to have Ryan Johnson. I am a Last Jedi fan. And, so are we. Yeah, and... You know, also, then we get to talk about Knives Out. So double um, whammy. Yeah, um, (laughs) which would be great. Hold on. I've got to think a little bit more. Uh, Doug Chang, I think the he's one of the main designers and artists, and he's a tremendously creative individual. I got a lot out of the workshop that he did. Well, not really a workshop, but the talk that he gave about how you evolve design in Star Wars at the celebration in 2019. And that makes me think he'd be a really fascinating person to sit down with. Totally. And and then I'm going to finish it out with Kelly Marie Tran because I love her. That is such like a lovely dinner. You're going to have such a good time. Yes. Yes. I, I think very good times are going to be had by all. Well, thank you, Claudia, so much for coming to talk to us on Sky Talkers. We really appreciate you taking the time. And congratulations again on Into the Dark. We love it so much. And where can people find you online at all? My website badly needs updating, but it's ClaudiaGray.com. That's gray with an A. And when you go there, uh, yes, it isn't super updated, but there are links to my social media. Like you said before, I'm not really on Twitter anymore, but my assistant does keep that up. And I am on like Tumblr and Instagram. So there are still places to keep up with me and what I'm doing. And you can just follow those links to whatever it is you personally follow on social media. Perfect. Again, thank you so much for joining us. And may the force be with you. May the force be with you always. All right, that was our interview with Claudia Gray, author of Into the Dark and so many of our other favorite Star Wars novels. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. She was so lovely to talk to. And like we said at the top of the show, just wow, it finally happened. (laughs) We finally got to talk to Claudia Gray. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. We had a great time talking to her. And thank you again for 200 episodes. And we are looking forward to 200 more. 
But that is going to wrap up this episode of Sky Talkers. If you want to talk with us online, you can find us on Twitter at Sky Talkers Pod or Charlotte's handle is at Clarity and mine is at Caitlin Plusher. We also have our website, skytalkers.com or our Instagram or Facebook too. Your social media handle of choice will be there. And if you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, we would really appreciate if you took a second to leave us a five-star review so other people can find our show. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our reward tiers there. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Z, Neil, Hammy, Savannah, Jennifer, Chell, Tom, Edith, Molly, Kels, Lady Valkyrie, Kate, Larry, Claudia, David, and Megan. Thank you so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes, thank you guys so much. And as always, until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.